If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. I'm beginning to think, and we we touched on this once before, but I'm beginning to think that we are becoming the same person. Yes, it's and concerning. And this is the most recent example of that. <laughs> we were trying to decide what movie we were going to watch uh, later tonight, so we decided to do, to do Rock, Paper, Scissors, Best of Three. Yeah. And it took us 15 times <laughs> because 13 out of the 15 shoots yeah. was exactly the same thing. Yeah. We have the same brain. Yeah. Our our method of how to win, one of us needs to change it up because we both do the exact same the thing strategy. every time. Yeah, the strategy, just keep it the same for like three shoots in a row and then randomly change it. Well, that's it. not my strategy, but... I well, mean, that's I'm, what it ended up being. Interesting. interesting <laughs> oh, that, shit. Okay. Well, that's not my strategy either. <laughs> Anyway, the bottom line is it took us forever and we still haven't chosen a movie yet. No, I picked a movie. Oh, I won, so I picked okay. a movie. Oh, you didn't tell me. All right. Is, Me is too. It, a, I, I picked the movie. Well, that's so right. It's you not won. Up to you. So, okay, fine. You know. you know what else is great? What? Um, you get to go first today. Oh my goodness! I just dropped a thumbtack. Hang on. Okay. I don't want to step on it. Banjo will eat it. Yeah. All right. All right. So it's January, uh, Enero for our Spanish-speaking friends, mm-hmm. and January is National Soup Month. Holy shit, you guys! We're talking about soup. Okay. Okay. I haven't been feeling well the last couple of days, and so I was enjoying a delicious bowl of no chicken noodle, uh-huh. and I was thinking to myself, who came up with this magic? So so you're doing the history of soup? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm wondering how you're going to make that weird... Hold... What or do you odd. mean? Of course it's odd. Uh-huh. The first person to say, let's put this shit in water and cook it up. <laughs> like, that's weird. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, how old do you think soup is? Um, well, 
the, there are some cans in our cupboard that go back a few years. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The Oxford Encyclopedia of Food and Drink in America stated that boiling was not a commonly used cooking technique until the invention of waterproof and heatproof containers. And it's likely that soup didn't really become a thing widespread until that method of cooking became a thing there, widespread. There were no chilled soups, no prehistoric well, chilled Well, they didn't have soup. any blenders to puree that uh, veg, so, okay. you know... Soup is primarily liquid food, generally served warm, but of course, maybe cool or cold. And it's made by combining ingredients like meat, vegetables, stock, you know what soup is. Mm -hmm. um, hot soups are generally additionally characterized by boiling solid ingredients uh, to form a broth. Now, putting a date on the world's first bowl of soup is probably impossible. <laughs> okay. Though I've asked myself the question many times. <laughs> is, that, is that a fact? Most sources state that soup making didn't become commonplace until somewhere between 5,000 and 9,000 years ago. Still, As, that's really early. 5,000 or 9,000 years ago, they were making soup? Yeah. And how were they doing that? Well, I mean, you said it's believed that they didn't really start making soup until there were like insulated containers right, and stuff. Right, heat-proof so, and waterproof yeah, containers. Right. Which would have been about 5,000 years ago. Okay. I guess I'm thinking more thermoses. Oh, yeah. Well... There weren't any prehistoric thermoses. No. Okay. Um, so Harvard University archaeologist Ofer Borosef and his colleagues reported in Science that their findings showed pottery in a cave in China, and they estimate that that pottery goes back 20,000 years. Wow. So when you look at these pots, you can see that they had been in a fire, and that's very possibly the oldest cookware that we know about. And there was there were soup remnants in it. There was not soup remnants in it. It's hard to know 20, what would have been cooked in the twenty thousand year old pot. When you consider that cooking can be done in the ground using hot rocks and stuff, it's really hard to discount that soup could have been crafted like in animal hides in a ground sure. stove or something. Okay. Neanderthals were probably cooking in some way, scientists have concluded. Um, the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences found that evidence of cooked starch grains were embedded in 46,000-year-old fossil Neanderthal teeth. Holy crap. From Iraq. Flossing issues, too. Wow. Oh, man. That's remarkable. Yeah. It would be if we weren't trying to get flossing jokes in. All right. So, of course, it has to be considered that different techniques and norms would have existed in different parts of the world. According to ilovesoup.net, <laughs> watery gruel is likely the origin of soup. Cereals would have been roasted and ground into paste, which later would then be cooked. The word soup probably derives from the bread over which this gruel was poured, called a sop or a sup. Oh, like you're sopping stuff up. That's right. Okay. Uh, before this word came along, the concoction would have been called like broth or portage. Gruel remains a staple in some cultures. But the earliest archaeological evidence for soup specifically dates back 6,000 B.C. And it was hippopotamus soup. Really? Hippopotamus soup is the first soup that we know of that that actually happened, that what? we have archaeological evidence of. 
The word soup, as we discussed, uh, probably comes from a bastardization of the things that were used to put soup on or the method of souping. Mm -hmm. A piece of bread was likely used to soak up soup or a thick stew. And so that bread soaked in broth would have been called a a suppa or something of that nature. It's like a vulgar Latin kind of deal. (laughs) Uh, And now I want soup. All right. Soup's a big deal. I know it seems like it's not, but it is a big deal because if you submerge food in water and cook it or in a broth and cook it, Mm -hmm. it cooks a lot faster Mm -hmm. than it does just over a fire. Um, You get the nutrients maintained within the broth, which normally you would lose into a fire if it was just roasting over a fire. So there's also a lot of like flavor differences in boiling foods. I'm wondering if maybe initially the guy who invented soup um, the soup genius guy mm-hmm. thought, I'll just boil my meat. That'll it'll cook faster. And then he's well, that looks pretty good. And then he drank the water. And that's how soup was invented. It's maybe there's some inedible plants that uh, become consumable after you boil them. So there are I'm really angry at you right now. Stop looking at me this way. Soup can be interesting. Soup is Fascinating. 6,000 BC. We know of soup from 6,000 BC. I know. We have some in our cupboard. In France in the 16th century, there was this highly concentrated, inexpensive soup sold by street vendors. And it was thought to be like an antidote for physical exhaustion. And they called it the French term for something restoring. And in 1765, there was an entrepreneur in Paris who opened a shop that specialized in these kinds of soups, these kinds of like um, get you back on your feet, hot broth on the back of your throat kind of soups, mm-hmm. right? And the, the he prompted this prompted the use of that word or that term, something restoring, uh, for these eating establishments. But um, it, the the term, something restoring, translated to a, a version of restaurant. So that's wow. how we got the word restaurant is from soup. Wow. Thank you very much. Soup is interesting. So, soup is interesting. Um, so restaurant is derived from a Latin word that means restorative. A French. A French word, I'm sorry, that means restore. That's fascinating. Yeah. I love that. Now let's talk about portable soup. <laughs> portable soup it is. Well, something I'd never heard of until, uh, well, yesterday. Now, it's a kind of dehydrated food that was used in the 18th and 19th centuries. It was kind of a precursor to, like, bouillon cubes or meat extract, basically. It was also called pocket soup or sometimes, (laughs) yeah. Pocket soup. That sounds so delicious. Timmy, finish your pocket soup. It's not as bad as veal glue. Or you won't get any veal glue. How can you have your veal glue if you don't eat your pocket soup? <laughs> so it was a staple for explorers and seamen, and it would keep for months or even years. Wow. So it's like ancient uh, cup of soup. <laughs> kind of like that. Well, it wasn't dried so much as it was cooked down. Okay. So it, soup was made and then reduced, and then basically uh, the 
fat that came to the top, they would scrape that off because that would make it go rancid. And then they'd reduce it again, take the fat off and mm. reduce it again. So it was like this thick, pasty kind of weird, gross stuff. Um, and then once it was gelatinous, um, they would put it in pieces of flannel or um, earthenware and then dry it further. They had to do this in the winter, though, because they had to make sure that the humidity was low enough. Mm. Apparently, humidity was the enemy of veal glue. Uh, And once it was dry, it was wrapped in paper and stored in boxes. Uh, According to Wikipedia, Lewis and Clark carried pants soup really on their 1804 and to 1806 expedition into the territory of the newly acquired louisiana purchase do you know that they only lost one member of their expedition party in the in the three years that they were out there and that person died of natural causes so pants soup is is healthy apparently yeah according to his letter from fredericton ohio on april 15th lewis purchased the soup from a cook in philadelphia he paid 289 dollars and 50 cents for 193 pounds of portable soup wow yeah um it was stored in 32 canisters and they took it with them on their way and apparently it kept them pretty sturdy That's amazing. Yeah. Then along came condensed soup. And you know who created that? Campbell's soup. Campbell, of course. Yeah. I didn't know that. I thought that they just did it. I didn't know that they (laughs) created it. I Mm. just, you know. They introduced that to the world in 1897. Do you know how many bowls of soup Americans eat per year? Oh, man. Seven? Well, that's close. Yeah? Yeah. Ten Billion bowls. Ten billion bowls. Ten billion bowls. Americans. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of soup. And women are twice as likely to order soup at lunch as men. Why is that? Is that like a weight thing? You know, women don't want to, oh, I I feel forced by society to stay thin, so I'm going to have a soup or a salad. Maybe. I think it's probably a combination of of that and uh, maybe it seems uh, heartier to have not soup. I don't know. Plus... Plus, they can use it as a weapon if they're attacked. They could. You know, because hot soup in the face of an attacker mm-hmm. would certainly slow down his advance. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. M- much more than fish sticks would. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, keep that in mind the next time you're at a restorative palace and you're looking for opportunities to defend yourself and enjoy a nice brunch. Those are our words of advice to you this day. And then there's the soup that's been cooking for 45 years. What? In Bangkok, there's a restaurant, Watana Panish. And this is where Netapong Kawiatuwang has his third generation restaurant where they have been cooking soup for 45 years. For three generations. Yep. Wow. The pot in itself draws crowds because it is huge. It's about five feet in diameter and two and a half feet deep. And in it is this uh, chunky beef kind of thing made with a dozen or so Chinese herbs, garlic, cinnamon, black pepper, cilantro root, and then, and then beef. He goes through about 150 pounds of beef every day. 
So this is the same pot. The same pot. It's been boiling or cooking for 45 years. Mm -hmm. It's never been cleaned. It has been cleaned. Oh, it has. That's one of the things that the owner of the restaurant wanted to make clear was a lot of people think that we never clean the pot, he said, but we do clean it. We remove the soup from the pot every evening and keep some of the broth simmering overnight. So some of what you will be enjoying Mm -hmm is from a broth that has been cooking continuously for 45 years. It's kind of like the sourdough. It's exactly like that. San Francisco. They've been making bread from the same sourdough um, loaf, Mm -hmm. I guess you would call it, since uh, the the gold rush days. The same lot, the same batch. It's incredible. A little bit goes in every day. Every day. So it's not like you're eating a bowl of soup that's been around for 45 years, but you are eating soup that is made from something that is it's like the Kit Kat thing. Uh, we learned not long ago that when um, Kit Kats don't come out looking the way that they're supposed to look, they go back in the grinder and get mashed up and become the filling for new Kit Kats. <laughs> so it is a uh, kind of a cannibalistic Yeah, type. I was going to say yeah. it's a cannibalistic confectionery type of thing. Anyway, that soup, it can be interesting unless you're a D-bag. Well, I'm sorry if I was being a D-bag. I, I, I certainly didn't mean to. And if, if I was, I apologize profusely because soup is fascinating. Thank you. And now, that thing in the middle. We are really, really missing traveling. And <gasps> one of the things that we've always really enjoyed doing is, is going to Disney World. And so this thing in the middle... Is Disney World related? It's brought to you by our sadness. And it comes from the Factinate website. Disney workers expose some of the weirdest things that they have witnessed. Number five. I picked up a shift in Magic Kingdom one rainy afternoon, and a lady approached me and asked if I could close the dome. I said, excuse me? And her reply was stunningly dumb. It's raining. Close the dome so we don't get wet. (laughs) I had to explain to her, a grown woman, that there is not a giant dome that covers Magic Kingdom to prevent it from getting wet in the rain. Number four. I was in line at Disneyland California and a group of Japanese teenage tourists were ahead of me in line. I speak Japanese so I could understand what they were that they were making fun of Americans. Uh, They were mostly saying things to the effect of, well, on TV, they seem cool, but all of these Americans are so fat and ugly. Uh, They were laughing and occasionally pointing at people. I was just staying quiet, but then one of the cast members who also spoke Japanese walked up to them and told them in perfect Japanese, you guys should be careful, most Americans can speak Japanese. And they all froze up and looked (laughs) around at people, many of whom whom were giving them dirty looks. I nodded at them like I was backing him up. (laughs) (laughs) They were all horrified. They left the line promptly. (laughs) That's wonderful. Number three, I was working in the kitchen at Cinderella's castle when this family of four came in for dinner. About halfway through the meal, the husband politely stands up, taps his glass for attention, and announced that his wife of 15 years had been cheating on him. (laughs) The entire place stood still in shock. He motioned for his children, paid the waitress, and left the wife crying at the table. (laughs) It truly is the happiest place on earth. Number two, I was a safari driver at the Kilimanjaro Safari Attraction in Animal Kingdom. We had this elephant. His name was Willie. Willie 
was an exhibitionist. I was driving a safari one day, spewing out facts about the elephants when I hear a tiny voice from the back of the truck yell, Mom, he has five legs. <laughs> I turn and sure enough, there's Willie standing with his five foot, you know what, just swaying in the Florida breeze. I had to turn my mic off. I was laughing so hard. And number one, I was working at Space Mountain on a rotation in a position called Mountain 3. Basically, I'd stand near the handicapped entry to the ride and help people get on and took wheelchairs to the exit. Anyway, it's the middle of summer and really busy when a lady wearing a big Disney hoodie was going through the normal line. And I thought it was a little weird to be wearing that big heavy jacket during the summer, but whatever. And then she gets into the restraint, which is the last checkpoint before the ride begins. At restraint, they just check your lap bars and then press a green button. Well, it was there at that point that they heard a whine coming from the lady's jacket Uh and found that she was trying to smuggle her infant daughter on Space Mountain. (laughs) We had to kick her off the ride, call our managers, and get security. She ended up being blacklisted from Disney World. Wow. Holy crap. (laughs) Yes. Every newborn loves the feeling of zero gravity in the dark. (laughs) I had a strange experience at Disney World years and years ago. I I worked in radio in Orlando, and we did a lot of promotional things with Disney World. Is that when you met Michael Keaton? Uh, That was a different time. But yes, I met Michael Keaton at Disney. (laughs) Disneyland, though. So jealous. So I was at Disney World, and we had to... The the cast members were taking us backstage uh, behind, like, where the firehouse is Mm -hmm. in Town Square to get to another part of the park. And it was an area where the characters would go and hang out during their breaks. And I and I walk through the door and I, I see Piglet with his head off having a cigarette. It was weird. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> I'm really surprised that they would be allowed to smoke in those costumes. Well, this was a long time ago. I'm sure. Yeah, you know, he had sure. his head off. I still have nightmares. Guess what I'm holding in my hand and I'll give it to you. This is The Box of Oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. 
And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Support for The Box of Oddities is provided in part by listeners like you on Patreon. You can support us too. Go to patreon.com slash box of oddities. Thank you. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. So once a month, we do a fun thing called Sunday Phone Calls with the Freak Fam. And if you're a patron... Uh, depending on your level, you can get our phone number and or hear those episodes uh, on Patreon. It's a perk for the Order of Freaks. In our last series of Sunday phone calls with the Freak Fam, Josh called in with a story about Robert the Doll. Now, you did a, a segment on that recently, mm-hmm. and the doll is haunted. And uh, apparently, <laughs> if you're not polite to the doll... He will curse you. That's right. So uh, we were very interested to hear what Josh had to say about his interaction with Robert the Doll. And we thought you would be, too. So a couple of years ago, we took a vacation down to Key West and we did the Ghosts and Gravestones tour, which if you ever go, do that. It runs you through like all the museums and stuff. but Mm. without It gives you the dark side of everything. Mm. So like the Audubon House, you you can go to that museum but then this tour will tell you all about how the guy's eight children died horribly from Spanish fever. Ooh. So all the good stuff. 
And the final stop was the place where Robert Vidal was uh, located. So we get there and the tour guide is giving us the whole rundown. And she had this amazing cadence where she started up here talking to her senses and then came down to here. <laughs> and then the next would be up here again and then she came back down to here. So I kind of maneuvered my way to be up front. And I then was like the first in the group to go take the picture. So I also approached Robert, politely asked to take his picture. I snapped the picture and, you know, I saw the picture go down and save. The little thumbnail was on my screen. And I thought, okay, I got my picture. I thanked him. We moved on with the tour and I got my phone out to take some other pictures. And I got an error message that said camera fatal error. Oh, no. So I opened up my gallery and Robert's picture is missing. <gasps> So I, I mean, I absolutely disrespected him, and I apologized to him um, the next day when we have a flight to catch. But I've had this phone for probably two and a half years. I've never seen a message that said camera fatal error again. Fatal camera error. Um, yeah, I would just, I would just throw my phone in the garbage and walk away slowly. I would not even hesitate for a moment. I don't know what it is about Robert the Doll. Yeah. I mean, I want to see a lot of scary things. Yeah. Uh, that's one that I I have no interest in. I just, nope, nope, nope. So when we go to the museum. I'll be waiting in the car. Do you think you'll just and sit you, on the bench outside? Yeah, with Bernie Sanders. <laughs> um, and if you go in and take a picture, you're using your phone, not mine. I'm, oh, no, of course. I have a better camera anyway. Well, um... My story is a little more horrifying than the history of soup. 45-year-old soup, though? That is pretty horrifying, <laughs> at least initially, when you hear that. Uh, I'm going I'm to talk about the horrors of Genghis Khan. Ooh. Genghis Khan, according to Wikipedia, born in 1158, died August 18th, 20, or rather 1227. He was the founder and the first great Khan, which means emperor, of the Mongol Empire. Now, that became the largest contiguous empire in history after his death. He came to power by uniting many of the nomadic tribes of Northeast Asia. After founding the empire and being proclaimed Genghis Khan, meaning universal, oceanic, and firm, strong ruler and lord... Beautiful. <laughs> he launched the Mongol invasions that conquered most of Eurasia, reaching as far west as Poland and the Levant in the Middle East. By the end of his life, the Mongol Empire occupied a substantial portion of Central Asia and China. And due to his exceptional military successes, Genghis Khan is often considered to be the greatest conqueror of all time. In more ways than one, I've heard. What do you mean? Um, I read just the other day that Genghis Khan is thought to be a ancestor of like one in 20 living people in China now. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. At the peak of his career, he was in control of about 12 million continuous miles of territory. Wow. He completely changed the world. Uh, he has a reputation for being a pretty tough guy and a mighty warrior, but he also did some good things, like he granted religious freedoms and he abolished acts of torture except when he was conducting them. Right. I just had to look it up because um, I thought I had done this. I thought I had talked about Genghis Khan, but apparently it was, um, I didn't finish it because it was too hard for me to understand. There's too much. Like, <laughs> I don't even know much. what Khan means. Oh. I just found that out today. It means emperor. I know mm. that now, but you taught me that just today. Aww. Yeah. 
So anyway, I thought that was interesting that I was like, oh, no, I've done this. But no, I didn't. I lazied out. <laughs> I, I, I bailed on Genghis Khan. <laughs> so thank you. You're welcome. Um, he, he rose from humble beginnings to ruler of the known world. And along the way, he did some pretty freaking horrible things. Um, his story starts when he was nine years old. He went to meet he went to meet his future bride oh. at nine. And on the way there, on the way home actually with his father, they were approached by an enemy clan, the Tartars. Like Tartar sauce? Yeah. They said that they wanted to just have a peace meal to offer peace because I guess they'd had some some spats in the past. And so they said, let's have a meal. And so they did, but they poisoned Khan's dad. Oh no. Genghis Khan's dad. He was poisoned at the meal, died for past crimes that he had committed against the Tartars. Once that happened, Khan tried to make himself the rightful leader of the group. He wanted to ascend to his father's position at nine of leadership at nine. But they didn't take a nine-year-old seriously. Weird. So he continued to work and prepare for leadership. And at the age of 20, he had mastered all the skills of brutality that his father had demonstrated. Uh, soon he set out to avenge his dad's death by annihilating the Tartar army. And then after he did that, he ordered the deaths of every male Tartar taller than a linchpin, which is about three feet tall, uh, by immediately beheading them. Oh, wow. It's thought that he did this to help preemptively avoid revenge attacks by, by the tribe, but he didn't just conquer the army. He then went into their village and he killed every male that was shorter than th or taller than three feet. Wow. That's just one thing. Then there was the time he left one single pile of human bones so large they formed mountains. From the 12th century till about uh, 1221, the Mughal massacre was taking place. There was a, a city known as Merv, which was a city of about a half a million people in modern Turkmenistan. On February 25th, 1221, they arrived at this city and they spent six days trying to decide whether or not that they were going to attack. Eventually, the decision was made. They attacked. Um, they, they told the people of Merv that they would be lenient if they surrendered without a fight. And once that happened, then they immediately went back on their word and totally ransacked the place and they killed the entire population of the city. Mm. Genghis Khan decided the first thing he should do is go and sit on the throne, you know, because that makes a statement. And from that throne, he ordered all the troops to be brought before him and be executed. The wealthiest people got the worst of it because while they were searching for uh, the wealthy people's belongings and, and riches, they tortured them until they gave up the information and then they killed them. Oh, a court historian for Khan's grandson wrote, quote, people were killed in such large numbers that the bones of the slain formed mountains and the desert ran red with blood of the dear ones. See, those bones, if you boil them, um, would release nutrients <laughs> sure. from... <laughs> right. Make a nice, a nice Genghis Khan soup. soup. At one point, he destroyed an entire empire because they murdered one of his messengers. Don't kill the messenger, guys. Yes. Gosh. Yes. Genghis decided to send a trade envoy to Sultan Muhammad II to uh, petition for a peaceful trading route. But the Sultan disregarded his message and he viewed the first envoy suspiciously, thinking they really didn't want to make peace. So Khan tried again. He sent another envoy. This time the Sultan 
killed the messenger. Uh, he couldn't let this go. Khan couldn't, of course. So he decided uh, probably war was the best thing. And um, after he sacked that one city, he went on to conquer all Persian cities in the empire. He ransacked, looted, and killed city after city, and then burned them all to the ground. Oh. Because one of his messengers was Ooh. slain. He was vengeful. I guess so. And then there was this one situation where he had a victory feast after a battle on top of the nobles that he had just vanquished as foes. The Russian generals had just surrendered and they were tightly bound and then placed underneath a large wooden platform. Then Genghis Khan and his army sat on the platform and had a huge celebration and a feast and a party as their enemies slowly and agonizingly suffocated and were crushed to death. They continued this celebration long after the uh, Russian generals had been crushed and killed. Oh, that's very creative. I mean, he also killed his brother over a piece of fish. Oh, one time. Like I said earlier, after Genghis's father was poisoned by the enemy tribe, Khan and his family, they were cast out by tribe leaders. They refused to acknowledge Genghis Khan as the next legitimate heir because, well, he was nine. So they were forced to scavenge for food in order to, to survive. Mm -hmm. And I guess Khan's older half-brother apparently found a fish, but he tried to keep it all for himself, and that pissed Genghis Khan off. So he became infuriated and shot his older half-brother in the face with a bow oh and arrow. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Over a fish. Over a fish. Well, I mean, he had to start uh, kind of cultivating this personality that yeah. would... At nine. Yeah. Yeah, that's what he did. Yeah. He also set siege to one city until the people that were trapped inside the city walls had to resort to cannibalism. Oh, no. In 1214, the residents of one city resorted to acts of cannibalism because their food supply had been cut off by Genghis Khan. Initially, they came to some sort of a peace agreement again, and uh, Khan was actually going to honor it this time. Okay. But then the leader of the city decided to move his throne to a different city, and that pissed Genghis Khan off. Sure. So he cut off their food supply until they ate each other. Oh, no. But that was just the beginning. Once they ate themselves, and he went in and took control of the city, that was just the begin beginning of a war that lasted 23 years. It's estimated that millions of people perished during the Mongol Jin War, and it started with this one issue that he had with uh, Got it. with the ruler who moved his throne. So he wasn't great at like letting things go and moving along. No, he held a grudge. Sure. And he knew that other people held grudges against him. Mm -hmm. And so when Genghis Khan died, he had one last brutal act in mind, that he would have everyone involved with burying him executed so that no one would know where he was buried, so he, they wouldn't dig him up and defile his body. How do you go about doing that? Here's what he did. Okay. This is based on historic claims. After they buried him, the funeral procession was on its way back to the capital city. As they were traveling, and there's about 2,000 of these people, as they were traveling, 800 soldiers ambushed them and killed them all. They were taken out. And then the soldiers who killed them were executed by another group of people to ensure that Khan's resting place remained undisturbed wow. for eternity. So, yeah, Genghis Khan, he, he had some anger issues. Right. I got most of my information from Ranker and Wikipedia. Get Genghis, yourself a bowl of gazpacho. <laughs> yeah, a little, little soup cool might down. have calmed him down a bit, <laughs> I would think. <laughs> Genghis Khan, I wouldn't invite him to my house. For soup. 
or even a hearty stew, really. <laughs> okay, well, we've got to uh, tidy this all up uh, pretty quickly because we've still got to order the food for tonight, and uh, I've got to get the movie together. I have selected the film. You've got to pick out the food. And so there's a lot to be done. All right, plus it's almost time to feed the dogs. That's right. So we'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, theboxofoddities.com. On Facebook at facebook.com slash boxofodditiespodcast. On Twitter at Box of Oddities and Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. history but hate when it's stuffy and boring well look no further and join me katie charlwood your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as i delve into unsolved historical mysteries murders by gaslight and of course women who have been misrepresented through all time on who did what now the history podcast that's not your history class listen wherever you get your podcasts hello everyone stuck here and i'm gabby And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.